Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the driver's seat. We're running a couple of days late, but we're here now and ready to disappear down who knows how many rabbit holes as we continue to explore the nooks and crannies that make up this crazy game. This week, we'll be watching our P's and Q's as we're joined by Octodally... <laughs> Let me try that again. As we're joined by Dr. Ali Bose, I was so nervous about the pronunciation of the surname, I got myself lost. A lecturer at Nottingham Trent University in the UK and co-author and collaborator on a fascinating recent project about writing and media exposure with friend of the pod and one of the game's most interesting players, Meg McLaren. We'll come to Dr. Ali and a whole bunch of interesting stuff about women, the media and golf in just a moment. But first, let me bring in my co-host back from a rare foray into proper golf competition. Adrian Logue, how was the New South Wales mid-amateur? Some pretty decent players in the field up there. I think Chris Campbell won it, former Japan Tour player. That's right, yeah. Well, some Beat pretty you decent like players. A drum, he would have. It, it, it wasn't. I, I don't think I was on Chris Campbell's radar, no, to be I honest. I didn't hear him mention you in any of his <laughs> post-round interviews. There was only, I, I reckon there's probably about 10 yeah. people who are yeah. serious contenders in that tournament, and the rest of it's sort of yeah, people like people you. going up on a golf trip. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Folks getting away from home for a couple of days. And and the women as well. There's uh, yeah, It was a great competition up there. Um, a lot of fun. And that golf course at Tunkurry, Tunkurry Golf Club, um, associated with the Foster Golf Club, Hidden gem, isn't it? Oh, it's an amazing golf yeah. course. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Like I often say to you, Rod, there's that thing of when you take a photo of a golf course, if you could remove 20 uh-huh. things, it'd be a better golf experience. At Tunkari, there was just nothing to remove. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was very pure golf course, really nice. Partly because of where it is, I'd imagine. As you say, it's one of those regional areas. They haven't got the money to bugger it up. Well, that's <laughs> a kind way of saying Or Yeah, the, they haven't built a clubhouse either. Um, it's sure. still people who've been there will remember there's that sort of a shed where the pro shop operated out of. They've kind of just extended that shed over the years, a little bit like the International Space Station. It's just got modules being added <laughs> onto it. And if anybody's ever compared the clubhouse at Tunkari to really, the International Space Station. It's very ramshackle, you know. And, uh, Sounds perfect. But then they've got a government grant to build a clubhouse now, so which is just the perfect way to do it. So the members haven't had to dip into their pockets. Which would be good the- for the community up there too. It's one of those real seasonal communities. The population probably triples in summer or maybe even more. So there's plenty to be doing. Fantastic stuff. How did you play? Uh, now, I know that you know it's not really serious, proper competition, but as club golfers, you go to an event like that, you stand on the first tee. I reckon it hits you as you're pegging the ball. Up. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, this is proper golf. Oh, you get found out. <laughs> totally found out. And uh, yeah, it is. There's, there's quite a lot of pressure on the first tee there just trying to get it in the fairway. And I striped it down the first every single round. Should you have stopped there? Pretty much every every single round. <laughs> the, actually, the nervousness hit me actually. Get once I was out on the course, yeah. especially after hitting a good tee shot. Yeah, because right. the, these strangers <laughs> looking at you, thinking, "Oh, this guy's <laughs> he's he a play. contender. He can play." And then the second shot, I just all three days, I just chunked the second shot horrendously. So Tiger did that at the 2008 US Open as well. Every time on the first hole, and he won it. So yeah. you know, you're not necessarily out of it yet. Uh, well done, thanks. You and quickly, where can people find us? I know you hate doing it, but it is your job. It's your only job apart from turning up. Uh, they can find you at Rod underscore Mori, me at Adrian Lowe on Twitter and adrianlogue.com and this podcast and many other great podcasts can be found at talkinggolf.com. Talking Golf Podcast Network. Get one G in just the one G and done that discussion with Huggy last night as well. Well, it's good to have you back. Uh, it's time now to discuss a somewhat more cerebral topic than your chunked second shots on the first hole at Tun Curry each and every day with our guest, Dr. Ali Bose. As I mentioned, Dr. Ali's a senior lecturer in the sociology of sport at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. But to stop there would be akin to saying Tiger Woods plays golf. 
flying in the face of that old saying that the lazy man does the mo- most work, let me introduce Ali in her own words from an email she sent me earlier this week while we were organising this interview. I started Research Golf, she said, at the European Tours Golf Sixes event in 2018. We considered the British print media coverage of the event, which was a battle of the sixes, how the European Tour and LET promoted the female players on social media and some of the ethical issues around that, and the players' perceptions of competing against men. Wow, these girls can play. Dr. Ali, you're absolutely right. They really can play much better than most acknowledge. We've done, we, and she has a research partner, Niam, that she did this McLaren pay with. We've done a couple of bits of media coverage research, contributed a book chapter on the Irish media coverage of Leona Maguire, who I interviewed last mm-hmm. year and is an incredibly impressive young woman and an incredibly impressive golfer. And a book chapter, this one really gets me, on the print, British print media coverage of the Solheim Cup. The Solheim Cup chapter was developed into an article on war narratives in the media coverage of the event Women, War and Sport. As soon as we finish discussing Meg McLaren, Dr. Ali Bose, we are going to Women, War and Sport. You had me at hello. Welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Really looking forward to having a chat today. And apologies for the boring intro talking about Adrian's golf. That's all right, guys. Thanks for having me on. No, we're, uh, we're looking forward to it. What's this thing you've done with Meg McLaren? She's a friend of the pod here. We've had her on a couple of times, I think. I did a extensive interview with her for another podcast I do called The Thing About Golf. She's an intriguing young woman, an incredibly good golfer, torn between two incredible skill sets, golf and writing. What were you trying to do with her? And tell us a bit about the project itself, because it was collaborative, which is somewhat unusual in the academic world. Meg was involved. Yes, definitely. Um, So I work with uh, Dr. Neve Kitching, who's based in Ireland and has done um, extensive research on on golf and women's golf and just through following uh, professional women's golf Neve and I really started to engage with um, Meg's blog um, it's got her obviously a lot of attention and notoriety around her writing and the kind of things that she's passionate about and things that she stands for it's very impressive as you've mentioned um, so me and Neve um, having research kind of women's women's golf and and sport media coverage of women's golf we thought it would be really interesting to try and put together sort of a collaborative project um with meg so we just approached her and and said we're really interested in what you write in why you write um kind of the reasons why she's put herself out there um and, and she is like an unusual case really not just in golf but in elite sport mm-hmm. um and female sport so got in touch with Meg and kind of um yeah just just said to her would you be interested in kind of working in an academic sense with us uh she's got her degree from Florida um and she was super keen to get involved so that's kind of how it started really then it just snowballed a little bit into um a slightly bigger project than maybe she thought she was signing up for so we uh, standard academics obviously we found out we had a lot to write about so and the first paper we just had published um, is one of three that we've kind of written in collaboration with Meg. Um, really, really lucky to be able to work with her on it. We're kind of in uncharted territory in terms of media, aren't we, Dr. Ali? I know that it's been some years now, social media has been with us for, well, there's probably a generation of people who haven't known the world without social media. But for those of us who grew up without it, somebody like Meg 20 years ago, the only way she would have been able to have any presence beyond her results would have been through somebody like me, so a, a journo, a golf writer, a journo. This notion that you can now do all of your own um, publicity is the wrong word, but your, your own public speaking on your own platforms 
is not always necessarily a good thing. Meg's blog, she is particularly vulnerable. It's interesting that she gets so much press for the gender equality stuff. It's probably 10% of what she writes about. The bulk of what she writes about is her own vulnerabilities and doubts and fears and how she overcomes them. But she's an interesting study, is she not, in a couple of ways, in that she really is in uncharted territory in terms of self-presentation as a professional athlete. And let's be honest, she's a bit too bright to be a sports person, isn't she? <laughs> um I mean, I couldn't comment on the second the <laughs> second point, but um, I think you have to be pretty smart to play golf, I think. but Or really unsmart, perhaps, you might argue. But um, yeah, she is in an uncharted territory. And, and this particular time, I think that's, that's why it's really interesting. And there's been a real growth of research around social media and kind of digital space in a variety of aspects. So whether that's... Um, races issues around racism and kind of abuse that athletes are getting by being much more accessible and vocal in, in social media or probably more akin to to the experience that Megan has um a, a space where she can actually have a voice um tons of research points to the near invisibility of women in the sports media especially historically and digital media has really given a space for um, blogs or online content to um, really position women in a much more prominent and visible space um, and that's what Meg's done um, and, and done really well. She started her blog um, when she was at college and one of the things me and Nee found interesting was we actually only as part of our research with Meg we only started looking at her blog from when she turned professional because um, it gave us like a nice benchmark really as to go what does it look like as a professional athlete to put yourself out there so to speak mm. um, and you're you're pretty much spot on she gained a ton of publicity for speaking about gender inequality um, and being being very vocal on that especially in the context of golf over the last couple of years but it does only form about 10% of a blog I would say I think me and Neve and we've done one of the little side projects is on her kind of voice in, in terms of being an activist for gender and in, gender inequality in golf. But the premise really of her blog is to like make sense of a lot of things. It's to talk about performances and bad performances, good performances. And, and the more you get into it, the more you really see the kind of ups and downs of um, being a professional athlete. And I think that's very hidden in media narratives of elite athletes. We see the the really positive, shiny stuff, fast cars and, big houses and I think the actual reality for lots of elite athletes doesn't look anything like that um, and especially kind of tour life for a golfer um, is nothing what people would people would think and I think Meg does a really good job of being really honest and vulnerable about things um, that are really difficult so that made it really interesting for Neve and I Neve's a, a very good golfer I'm a terrible golfer arguably welcome doctor mm -hmm. um, you're, yep. you're with us so, <laughs> there's more of us so, than there is of them so always take comfort in yeah <laughs> um so yeah no we, we were really lucky to that she wanted to engage with the project um i think you said earlier it's uncharted territory really it, it really is it's uh quite innovative in terms of a methodology to engage with an elite athlete or a, a person on a on a research project and give them co-authorship and space to write stuff and engage with how how we'd worked worked with her and and understood how she wrote about things so uh really interesting project to work with her on and um 
I hope that she enjoyed it and, and got stuff out of it because um, it's a really cool project that we did in the end. Knowing Meg, mm-hmm. that would have pushed her intellectual buttons in a huge way. I think she would have enjoyed that much more than the time she's endured sitting with us on this podcast talking about <laughs> inane nonsense. I think she would have found that really, really interesting. Adrian, you're a reader, obviously, of Meg's blog, and you've been here. We've interviewed her together uh, on the show. I think she's the most interesting professional golfer to me uh, in the world, far more so than the Bryson DeChambeau's or maybe not Tiger. Tiger's a fascinating character, but she's the most interesting by far because she's found this, probably to her own surprise, success with these blogs that speak directly to every golfer. That experience you had at Tun Curry is no different to some of the stuff that she writes about in her own experience, making double bogeys from the middle of the fairway when you're leading a tournament, that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, indeed, and there's probably a lot of professional golfers who have similar experiences but just can't express it in those terms. They don't want to vocalise it because if you give it, it's a we- if sign you make of it real, it can yeah. happen again. That's right. It's a- and and I, like by her own admission, she doesn't start out necessarily trying to write these things for public consumption. I think she's well, she says in this in the paper um, that she she often starts writing to make sense of things for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find curious and what I, one of the things I admire about Meg's writing is that it does take – and anybody who's tried to write something for public consumption knows this – it takes a lot of energy mm-hmm. to take it from something that you're just doing for yourself to be something that you're comfortable to share with a lot of people without it losing the energy and the meaning that it originally had. And I, that's what I find quite intriguing and she speaks to that a little bit in the paper – um, where she talks about and, – and for me, I, I imagine the process for her starts out something like I'm frustrated with something, I'm curious about it, I want to write about it to get some clarity for myself and then you sort of get that together on a piece of paper or on you know on the computer and then you start to formally sort of restructure it and, and that restructuring is where – you're often, especially restructuring for public consumption yeah, to enough. publish, it's mm-hmm. where you often uncover the true thing yourself. Like it's it's the- Yeah, the realisation. Oh, sometimes you find yourself saying things, I think, that you'd never expect yourself to. And when you hear yourself say it, there is something happens within the mind. Isn't that the age-old question what you're talking about there, though, Adrian? Is the art for the artist mm-hmm. or for the viewer? That's essentially what you're talking about, isn't it? For sure. and But I think to a certain extent- a lot of what Meg does her writing for, and I'm trying to psychoanalyze it a little bit here. It could She'll be back on the sat- show one day, so be careful. <laughs> could be satisfied by having a diary, um, but clearly, I think it. She she probably writes some of this stuff and feels like it crosses over into an area that's worth sharing, mm-hmm. and of some of the gender equality issues would definitely fit in that category where. She's she's thought oh, okay I've got this I've got this idea for myself I'm helping to make sense of it you know this this tournament that we played jointly with with the men's tour the total prize pool for the women was exactly the same as the win or less in fact than the winner of the men's, men's tour yeah. of the men's event how do I make sense of that you know we're doing the same job we're doing the same work and she starts to put that narrative together and then that is actually something that's worth sharing and and I think to Meg's credit she recognises that and puts that extra effort in and we all know it's a lot of extra effort on top of what she's doing to package stuff up so well and and get it up there on the blog and 
post regularly as well. She probably posts once or twice a month. She's now writing a column for a magazine, which yep. is fantastic, and uh, and good on her. She deserves to get paid for some of some of what she writes. It's interesting that tweet that Adrian just mentioned. It was a tweet, Doctor Ali, that really started all this gender inequality stuff for Megan. All she tweeted was the purse for the men's European tour event. And the purse for the ladies' European tour event, which was, I think, the following week, if I'm not mistaken, in the Middle East. And as she, as, as Adrian said, I think the the women's purse was 10%. That's all she tweeted. Mm-hmm. And that started a storm, which I think has probably led to – I don't reckon 10% of her blog would have been about gender inequality had it not been for the response to that, Dr. Ali. Did you get into any of that with Meg? And from outside, do you get any sense of how it's taken on a life of its own in some ways, hasn't it? That part of what she writes about, which is the minority. Yes, definitely. Um, I think that's what um, really kind of thrust her into people sitting up and taking notice a bit um, for a blog. I think what Adrian was saying about the rationale behind how she does it, it uh, in the, the sort of first paper that we've done with Meg, very much is there's a very much a sense of um, making sense of things. And it just so happens that that's in a public space for her and how she does that is through writing things down. And I think there's real value in that for Meg. Um, the gender equality stuff has been quite sporadic in Meg's blog, really. But that's really what she's um, probably pretty famed for. In, in if we think about the posts that maybe have had significant impact or um, had initiated quite strong reactions, she isn't scared to put herself out there. And that's sort of as me and Neve have worked with her and kind of our own background in doing research on you know women's sport and media coverage that's we think that's a really important strategy for starting conversations around change um and loads of it stems from the or from Meg's experience the disparities in the purses between the men's and women's events um there's one particular one I think Meg had tweeted about this where um in Morocco the ladies European tour and the men's European tour play or or definitely used to play um probably not this year obviously but um play them play in morocco and they play um at the same golf course but uh, same golf club different courses and the men's event was live on sky and the women's event didn't even have a highlights package and she was very much questioning like would it have taken much effort to shift a couple of cameras over to the women's event and give them some coverage And when lots of the discussions around disparities in pay, whether that's golf tournaments, sponsorship, you know, FIFA World Cup, professional footballers, etc. Loads of the the sort of counter arguments come from, well, these are commercial sports effectively run like businesses um, and the, the economics don't fit when there's limited sponsorship or limited advertising revenue or limited space on on TV um, screens and in newspapers etc so there's whole like range of arguments that are embedded into a, a simple tweet that that highlights something and and ends up provoking you know strong responses on pro and against and I think Meg often gets caught up in the middle of it a bit because she doesn't necessarily advocate for gender equality perhaps we might want to frame it so she's not saying pay us the same but I think what she does is is quite provocative in that it just like highlights things that she notices around her life as a female golfer and how that might differ or or work differently um if she was a male golfer on tour so yeah she um 
definitely throws up lots of uh, interesting conversations and gets herself some interesting comments back, I believe, as well. She's put herself, and this will be of great interest to you and your research, is it Neve? Did I pronounce her name wrong? Neve, is that what she said? Yeah, it's Neve. She's Irish. N-I-A-M-H, so of course. The letters don't correspond in any way to the sounds that they make. It makes perfect sense. Yourself and Neve will no doubt be interested in this. Not deliberately, but Meg has become a lightning rod for this stuff, whether she wants it or not. Now, I talked to her about this when we did our interview up at Bonville earlier this year. That puts her in an awkward position, doesn't it? She now has a decision to make. Does she keep speaking out, possibly at the expense of her own professional career because of the time and the energy that it saps from her dealing with this nonsense? Or does she, for her own personal good, put it all aside, don't get involved in it? She had this same ethical dilemma about playing in Saudi Arabia. She decided as soon as the tournament was announced, that she wouldn't be playing there. And she didn't want to tell anybody that or so because she knew what would happen, but she was asked about it by Jamie Corrigan from The Telegraph, and she had to say, no, I'm not playing. And he, of course, he's a good journalist. He said, well, why not? She said, because I can't, I can't ethically make that decision in my own mind. I can't bring myself to go and play there. So, Dr. Ali, she's now in this unfair position that I don't think – well – Tiger Woods might be the only other one who may have found himself in that position, but he has always kept at arm's length the race discussion and his place in the world. And that's not to criticise him for doing that. Meg's in that same awkward position, isn't she, where this could really impact her career. Yes, I would say she is in an awkward position. I think it's an awkward position that she um, really feels as well. Mm-hmm. Um It's a responsibility, isn't it? Because other players come up to her and say, oh, don't tell anyone, but I really love your stuff. I I was really glad when you said that. They're, in a way, kind of relying on her. She she, she hasn't meant to, but she's become something of a Mm. poster child. One of the things I took away- I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Ali. One of the things I took away from reading the paper was that there's, there's really no responsibility for Meg to be- uh, to to sort of lead a movement or anything like that. In fact, that's my my understanding of what I was reading in the in the paper was that this this concept of a movement is something you can't really rely on uh, as, as a woman in sport. You you kind of need to stride out on your own and and use what you've. Well, it uh, I, I don't know. Perhaps you can explain it better. My my, my some of my reasons for for reading this was that I was hoping to get answers to some of this stuff that I don't really understand. And I don't understand it because it's not part of my sort of everyday lived experience. And it's one of those things, I think, if it's not happening to you, then it's, not it's, happening. it's almost invisible. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and you might dip in and out of the issue from time to time, but that's not enough to really have it be something that you're conscious of all the time. And so in, in reading the paper, I was excited that I might have um, – something here that sort of spells it all out for me and to some extent it did but it was there was a lot of academic language layered in there which um uh, I, I struggled with quite a lot um, adrian's not very bright <laughs> and but there was a theme that i could see there that you you know you can't necessarily rely on a movement sweeping through and like taking you along for the ride to equality, it's not necessarily going to happen like that, and and sort of my understanding of the feminist movement is that that's somewhat what 
the hope was or is for the feminist movement that there's this this wave that will sweep everybody along. So Meg leads the charge and everyone comes in behind now Correct. they've got a leader and, and then there's safety Correct. numbers, but and, it doesn't happen. And that'll take that? everybody to equality. But in reality, and though that's an important part of raising awareness, but in, in reality, there's these concepts of neo-feminism and uh, post-feminism uh, or, and there's... And and that's more about the individual just doing what they can for themselves, is my understanding. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, but the wackiest golf podcast in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get some of your so thoughts first on that. of all, sorry about the heavy academic side of it. Um, I'll do my best to kind of help it make sense, I guess. So we we talk about um, Meg's involvement as um, a blogger, and and the first thing we do is position that as quite interesting in that. Um, for women to really have like a, a big voice and a big space in sort of me- media spaces, I guess, if we want to call it, um, a lot of it has centered on women having to find that space for themselves, mm-hmm. e.g. Meg's blog or um, athletes that have become quite vocal on Twitter, Megan Rapino being an obvious one. Um, so we talk about the the context of how societies operate operates and organized that has led to that being the only place where Meg can have a voice so we talk about or it'd be quite obvious to say well the sports media is typically organized in a way that there's more male journalists for example and men's sport is more more um, strongly covered and more prioritized so we could take I guess a really macro look at how society's organized and say well and sort of follow the path down and say well it makes sense that the only place for Meg, a European tour, professional golfer, to have a real presence in the world is a space that she carves out for herself because the, the golf media are not going to do that for her. So we, we talk about that and I think then we we speak with Meg and, and one of the other projects we're doing that hasn't been published yet, but um, we, we talk especially about her posts around gender equality and the impact of that and she I think at the at the first point of her doing that it was very much her making sense of how her golf world was organized mm-hmm. so I don't think she necessarily and to I mean cautious to speak for Meg obviously but I don't think she put herself out there to go I want to change golf and I want to make women's professional golf more equitable in terms of money or sponsorship or however it it would play out she didn't do the blog and posts on gender inequality to do that she she blogs to make sense of those for herself and to highlight things that she's noticing and as you guys say it's it's her everyday experience it's really easy for us as outsiders to casually look at the I don't know the um, total prize fund for the British Open on the women's side and the open for the men and go, Oh, look at that. That's a big difference. And then our everyday lives carry on just as normal. But for the golfers that exist in that world, that's like a very real experience, I guess. So I don't think she necessarily intended on being a a gender equality advocate. I don't think it will be a direction that like will strongly see her continue to go. I think she's very much a golfer. She loves golf Mm -hmm. Lots of what she writes about is actually unpicking golf and the weirdness of it and the difficulties of it. Um, and I think she even has said to us in the the project that we're we're still working on her with that 
you know, she's seen changes in golf environments the past few years that indicate that there are positive mm. directions that we're heading in. Very so much, yeah. lots of lots of like interesting angles, really, when we think about, I guess, the context of why Meg does what she does, the the reasons why she had to do it, potentially where she's going to go with it. I think there's a lot of like interesting nuances to Meg McLaren as a golfer and blogger and existing in a professional golf world. Yeah, indeed. And of course, on top of all this, she's trying to win golf tournaments, which is a <clears throat> full-time job and then some mm -hmm. in itself. You know, the very top players in the world with all the money at their disposal have teams of people to ensure that they don't have to deal with anything beyond how to hit this six iron 207 yep. yards. Yep. That is all their existence is about and it supports Which is them. how it should be. Kind of, yeah. If anybody it's, wants their best chance of success, yeah. you, you really need to focus Absolutely. on things. I mean, and, and it's one of those things I'm often saying in this podcast, people should relate to their own jobs. Think of the, the projects that you've worked on which have been most successful. They're those things which are sort of all-consuming where you're going to bed thinking about it, you're thinking about it while you're brushing your teeth, you're thinking about it in the shower, you're thinking about it on the commute to work. You, you sit down. Stuff there, you can't wait to sit stuff happens in a day that <laughs> you can't wait to, that. You can't wait to sit down at your desk yeah. and get stuck into a thing. And then, you know, some really, you kind of enter into a bit of a fugue state, but some amazing stuff can come out of that. And I often think, you know, for professional sports people to get their best performance. You they need to be able to enter into that that's right. zone. To go onto the range, but to actually be completely alone no matter who's around and just discover something inside. Were you surprised by any of what Meg told you? I'm really interested in this collaborative nature, Dr. Ali, because we normally look at this stuff from the outside and that's just the way we do it. You know, we take Meg's blog, we dissect it and speculate about what her motives might have been and all that, and we might interview her from time to time. But this collaborative approach really interests me. I would imagine, I'm going to ask Meg next time I talk to her about this, I'd imagine this has been a real journey of discovery for her as well. You've probably asked her questions about things that she hadn't considered herself. Um, yeah, I think we did actually. Um, and it was something, as you were saying, her, her job is all-consuming and all different time zones and uh, she's a busy person basically so me and Neve were very conscious not to um, sort of overload her with stuff I think as Adrian was saying some of the stuff in academic research is pretty heavy going in terms of theoretical understanding and unpicking it all but um, what we did was uh, Neve and I went through the blog and pulled out things that we noticed were, were like I guess patterns in how she writes about things. So obviously she she extensively writes about um, or justifies why she's writing her blog. She talks about being authentic, um, honest. Um, obviously touches upon gender equality, but that really is like a a secondary aspect to the blog, which is very much her unpicking um, performance and and the mental side of golf. I guess. So we went through that process and the initial plan was to give her the the sort of working research project up to that point and say what do you think of it like what's your contribution to it sort of thing but as we went through it we thought that really we had some questions about why she would write it so we asked her um, why she started it um, the, if the purpose of the blog has changed um how she articulates herself and, and positions what she writes about. And I think well, she said to us in a response that she'd never actually really thought about the 
I guess the reasons why she wrote or the reasons why she focused on certain things and other things, it very much was um, a way to, of her to just get things out. And she had, she said she feels like she had loads of different identities and she didn't really know how to make sense of those. Um, that was when she was studying in America. And then, yeah, I think we have given her something. I hope we've given her some things to think about in terms of, um, why she writes and, and her role in her writing and positioning herself in this way. Um, and, and something she said was that as she's grown and the blog's developed, it's she's grown in confidence and become more open to being vulnerable and honest and sharing those difficult moments of being a golfer and, and being a woman in golf and stuff like that. So I think I'd love to think that we have made her think about it in a slightly different way, perhaps, um, who knows? I'm sure she'll tell you. <laughs> she's a – I think she's been born with two gifts and both are a necessity for her. One of them is writing and the other one is golf. And she wouldn't necessarily write publicly. And there may be many other golfers who do a lot of their own writing and journaling for just their own consumption but never public. But the way she talks about writing, it's not a task. It's a need. She, she doesn't have a choice. She has to sit down because her head is just too busy with stuff. So well done you for giving us some more things to think about, Dr. Ellie, because that's just probably what Meg needed was mm. another layer. I know, yeah, just needed a few more bits whizzing around her head. Although, it, although in fact, I think she probably does. Her mind is going to be constantly active regardless. And if it's got interesting things to try and pull apart, interesting hairballs to pull apart and see how they work, that really does – that stimulates her and is good for her, I think, in all ways, including for her golf. Um, I think she plays her best golf when she's at her most probably intellectually active in, in some ways. You know, we're talking about her as though she's not going to listen to this. She may listen to this. So we'd better be nice or she'll never come back on I, I thought it show. was interesting in the paper uh, that you sent her a list of questions, but you didn't send her your own findings with those questions just in case that tainted her. Infected her res responses. responses, yeah. Is that an important part of the the process it seemed to be a little bit of scientific method to that i thought well you would think that uh, <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm sure the reviewers and the the publishers also think we've got scientific method in our madness but to be honest um me and neve didn't really have any benchmarks in terms of how we approached it from a research perspective um because it's not just not really done like often uh research will be done at interviews or surveys or very much focused on like collecting stuff from people and writing about it just as you were saying earlier Rod but so we we knew we wanted Meg involved we we wanted to write about her blog and we had someone who was interested in what we we're doing who's a really good writer probably better than me and Neve and most academics so for us, it was very much like a how could how can we include Meg in this process because she's super talented and it felt um, insincere of us to write a paper about her writing and her not be involved. Um, it's yeah, a bit of a weird one really. So we initially intended on sending her all all our work and. The reason we didn't was the the further down we got to it, and we we start drawing our own conclusions like, oh, okay, so she says in this blog at this point and this blog at a different point, like these are the reasons why she's writing and this is the rationale for doing doing the the project. Um, and then we're like, well, what happens if it isn't? We're just presupposing things that she like might be completely off the mark. So we just left all our stuff to one side 
asked her the questions and then it was only when we had her response back from us where she kind of went into detail on why she engages in this whole process um, that we then sent her the full paper to which she then sent a response which forms like the the basis of the conclusion for the paper really which was very much um, she said it was really weird reading about people writing about her writing it's quite a complicated process I get and that she she'd never really thought about the impact of her context so existing as a woman in professional golf which is typically a, a very strongly patriarchal traditional culture and she hadn't thought about the impact of that on how she writes about things which was something that me and Neva used as like a start point for wanting to research Meg in the first place I think that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no obvious like scientific rationale to do it that way because it's not a common way of doing research, but it's a way that we thought was going to be the most appropriate to kind of centralise Meg in the project instead of mm. writing about her, if that makes sense. Yep, golf talk of a very different kind. That's what you get here at Good Good, and certainly you're going to get a healthy dollop of it today. Now, it's all well and good to talk about this inner city lefty media, big picture concept stuff, but really, is it as important as looking good while you're out playing golf? Now, the best way to look good is to wear stuff made by the best brands in the game. And if you can do that without spending a fortune, then surely it's a win slash win Talking Golf sponsor the Golf Society, specialise in the game's most stylish apparel at the best possible prices. Everything from Travis Matthew and Peter Miller to Adidas and G4 shoes, all at thegolfsociety.com.au. And if you tell them we sent you by adding a slash Talking Golf to the end of that, you'll get $25 off your first purchase. That's thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talking Golf, just the one G in Talking Golf. Now let's get back to Dr. Ali Bowes. Media is incredibly important, isn't it, Dr. Ellie? And it has changed more than perhaps technology has changed the media perhaps more than any other industry, uh, I think. Oh, the invention of the yeah. phone is the equivalent of the printing press. When you put the internet into people's pockets, the world changed irreversibly. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the online media space, as you were saying, is absolutely huge um, and has come with it yeah problems but also for for women in sport it's um been hugely important it's often often considered as a sort of a free marketing space um the use of social media and digital media by women's sports organizations is extensive because it is a space where fans of women's sport can keep up to date with results you know latest scores tea times etc um, where perhaps they haven't been able to before. So mm. I think it's been, um, it's ch it's changed the world to, to, to not even say it lightly, um, but especially for women's sport in terms of visibility and coverage, it's been um, pretty central. Adrian and I are golf course architecture nerds, which is a fairly small subset of the golf world. <laughs> but what the internet has done has created a space where most of us have found each other and what was a disparate bunch of people all feeling lonely in their own small part of the golf world, being one of only two or maybe the only member at their golf club who had any interest in why that bunker was on the inside of the dogleg of the seventh, suddenly found a few thousand other people who were also intrigued by that. And it's created something. And that's not a dissimilar thing to 
if you were interested in the Ladies European Tour before the internet, good luck down here in Australia finding just the results, finding someone to worship, finding out who is the dominant player. As a youngster wanting to get into golf and wanting someone to look up to, you couldn't find them. And Kari Webb wrote to, I think it was Golf Digest when she was eight years old, Mm -hmm. and said to them, can you please put more women's golf in the magazine? That's amazing, yeah. That's yeah. an awesome little story. Yeah. yeah, it's a fantastic story. I think they republished it not long ago, sort of a 200-word letter saying, please. Anyway. Of course, one of the things that's covered in the paper is the techniques that media use to represent women mm-hmm. in sport. And I found this quite confronting. There's these five techniques. talks a lot five about this, techniques. Yeah. Um, and so, just to read them out, there's gender marking. Mm-hmm. Compulsory heterosexuality, mm-hmm. appropriate femininity, mm-hmm. infantilization, and downplaying of sport. Mm. And interestingly, what what's also been observed is that when women represent themselves, they they self present in a way that they emphasise the athletic uh, aspects of their um, of. of their identity, Lexi's Instagram workout videos, that sort of thing, and exactly, yeah, and it's so, and and I think this goes to the the heart of the the paper really is that when uh, when women are given the opportunity to take responsibility for their own well being and their own sort of representation, that they they choose to portray themselves completely differently to how the media <laughs> to what male sports editors yeah. have traditionally for lots of years before the yeah. internet, and in some ways, that is interesting, isn't it? Dr. Alley, that's a real shift. Yes, really, uh, really significant. So the the kind of five strategies that Adrian was talking about um, were written about by a professor in New Zealand called Professor Tony Bruce. And she is the all-knowing professor on uh, media coverage of women's sport. So she have you got her email? Why we got, that I was going to say, have we got her email? <laughs> she did got her on. Um, so she, yeah, she spoke about the the sort of five um, traditional ways that women have been written about in sport media, and often we are talking about the written press as well. Um, so it's like the subtleties of that you probably wouldn't even notice at the first instance, but it's the way we always refer to. Uh, women's sport as women's sport, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yet men's sport is sport. sport. So, mm-hmm. um, the something marking. quite significant actually. The Rugby World Cup, the next round of the Rugby World Cup, which I think is 2021, um, for the women anyway, they have dropped the women from the title. So, both World Cups are just called the Rugby World Cup. And that was the first time in any elite competition that's ever happened. Um, so we are seeing changes and shifts away from those uh, types of presentations, I guess. Um, so just as a counter, it, does it not make some sense to differentiate between the two, though? I think the argument around it is if we're going to put women's before the Women's World Cup, put men's before the Men's World right. Cup as well. So add something uh, to the men's uh, as yeah, well to make it okay. Because that makes sense. highlighting one as the World Cup and the other one as the women's world cup the other world has cup. like <laughs> yeah, that's right. has like subtleties yeah. in terms of oh well one's the world cup and the other one is the secondary less important it's, one it's that's why it's the on. women's yeah, so i think it's all like when we we look at um i guess how things are written down and 
do sort of narrative analysis or content analysis on what's written and the ways in which it's written. Those are the kind of things we're looking for. They're like interesting little bits that maybe as you're just looking for the scores, you don't particularly notice. Um, and it's people like me and Neve and, and other academics who sit down with lots of newspaper articles and unpick some of those ideas. But um, we are seeing shifts. We are seeing changes. There's increasing number of women working in sport journalism, which has a difference. There's um, increasing professionalization of women's sport really helps in terms of legitimizing women's space in sport as saying we're here, we're professional, we like we know what we're doing sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's something that I've noticed. Um, the paper you, you spoke about at the start, Rod, about uh, the Solheim Cup, that's something that we looked at how the Solheim Cup was written about and we noticed and, and reported much more positive findings than perhaps what people would have looked at. 10, 15 years ago, for sure. So there, there are positives um, alongside, I guess, persistent problems as well. But mm, yeah, let's come. Not all bad. No, we'll come to that in another. And of course, none of this is to suggest that coverage of men's sport is ideal or perfect either. It's just, <laughs> the, the, oh yeah, no, there's, absolutely. There's lots of issues around the way the mainstream media deals with uh, deals with men's sport as well. A couple of sort of interesting things that I think come off from that. The temptation, I'd imagine, and the reality for a long time pre-internet social media self-representation for women and certainly since is if you're a woman and a smart woman you can exploit those existing realities can't you you can become very successful by buying into those five narratives and exploiting them yourself yeah and so now if you don't do it that's your fault there's a path to success here you're not using it that's your fault yeah yeah it's a quite a um, I guess a contested space to talk about really because um, there are some women who are very very successful in golf and otherwise um, in any aspect of, of sport that have really played on um, being appropriately feminine and being obviously heterosexual um, which is not to say they're being disingenuous is it but- no not at all I think um, I guess the the problems with it is when when we look at it critically, so it's very much taken from an academic perspective, I guess. So there's arguments in, in multiple different ways. But um, if we think about trying uh, how we position female athletes, so as academics and female athletes themselves, they often want to be seen as valued for being an athlete and they want to be written about for being good at what they do. Um, so there's there can be like a bit of friction really between those athletes or um, people that are are kind of in the popular space um, around a sport that buy into what often female athletes are working against. So they don't want to be in, I don't know, on the news websites because they uh, wore a dress or wearing a dress they want to be in the news websites when they're hitting an absolute bomb down the first or win winning a tournament with a 30-foot put I think that's the I guess the like gray areas of Mm. how problematic is it to buy into being or, or playing up to those ideas or should female athletes be positioning themselves where they want to be seen as 
I guess, legitimate athletes as opposed to like women first, if that makes sense. So loads of kind of debates around that to be had, I guess. Well, you might actually want to be both, mightn't you? You yeah, might, absolutely. You might want to be incredibly successful golfer by day and put on pretty dress and makeup at night. There's nothing wrong with either of those things. Um, it's about what makes sense. Here's something interesting for you, Dr. Ali. I'm not pretending to know this whole story because I'm not an AFL fan. Here in Australia, there is an AFL footballer who had trouble coming to terms with his club, apparently, with his new contract because his wife, who is an elite netballer, uh, a professional netballer, uh, had signed with another club in another city and wanted to move. And the headline in the paper was, Wags move costs player contract. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's basically what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm guessing that nobody in that office prior to that story going out had any sense of the stupidity of that. And, of course, once it hit the, hit the world <laughs> – People were pointing out just how absurd that was. But as much as we're moving in the right direction, we're a long way from getting there uh, Absolutely, in yeah. many ways, isn't it? So there's just uh, just sort of one example. I'm fascinated. You had me with the headline. This is very tabloid of you, Dr. Ali. Women, war, and sport. Mm-hmm. Come on, that's man by its dog. <laughs> <laughs> What's that about? Okay, so it was for um – a special issue of a journal, so a collection of research projects that looked at the relationship between sport, war and peace. Um, Sport is inherently, especially in written form, inherently tied to notions of nationalism. Um, Think about the the sort of strong moments where people are playing sport. Um, It's probably the only time in your life where you might sing the national anthem or Um, have any sort of strong affinity to national symbols, I guess. So there's a ton of research on sport and the nation and the notion that often when men go out to to play and in in your head, it's probably sort of rugby or Aussie rules or whatever, those kind of real um, contact sports that they're sort of warriors and, and they're going out to battle. So it's something my PhD actually at Loughborough University looked at, um, women who represent the nation so I I spoke to lots of women who played sport for England about their sense of I guess being a warrior and and do they feel sort of representative of the nation do they feel that they're symbolic um, of the nation in the same way we have that sense of of men when they compete for uh, in the international sport um so that's like the background to it I guess um and then we get the interesting uh, golf event of the Solheim Cup. So the <clears throat> the female equivalent of the Ryder Cup, obviously, um, as it's famously known and often written about, actually, in that way. Um, and myself and Neve and a couple of other academics, so Professor Alan Berner and Dr. Stuart Wiggum, were part of a um, we're, we're sort of doing some research around the Solheim Cup. And we just as part of that. Uh, did a media collection of British print media around the Solheim Cup weeks. Um, and we're really interested in the, I guess, the fact that it was a Solheim Cup, so a Team Europe in Scotland during a post-Brexit vote, but we haven't left the EU yet. And it all just felt like politically all quite a bit weird. So we we kind of collected... Um, 
media articles on that. And one of the really obvious things that we noticed was um, this kind of battle narrative that runs through how reporters and journalists write about the Solheim Cup. And in particular, um, Suzanne Pettersson as like a Viking or a warrior, or I think at one point they referred to her as a Braveheart. Um, So that was uh, the premise of the paper. We looked at how the media um, reported on the Solheim Cup. And it's an unusually positive paper about media coverage of women's sport because we the conclusions we draw from it is that um, the media had really positioned these female athletes unusually in this way as as warriors and as really going out and doing battle and it's not something we often see when we talk about female athletes based on what Adrian was talking about earlier they're often sexualized and feminized and not spoken about in these like strong powerful ways um, especially in a sport such as golf so yeah we thought it was really interesting and that's basically the premise of that project it's a we see this well we do this with sport constantly words like by the way i'm one of those journalists that you've just disparaged there a reporter <laughs> who's written all of this stuff at various times in the past and you don't think about it until you think about it that which sounds silly but that's the truth of it we see this with the Ryder cup don't we and this is this I don't, i'm sure it's got a name this effect um i can disparage adrian for fun and that's all good because he's my mate or my brother or my best friend. But if somebody over there does exactly the same, Adrian and I are now united in war with that person. Uh Tribalism. Yeah. So for two years, the press that's got no interest in women's golf, in covering it or writing anything about it, suddenly has this reason to get behind it. You get this positive coverage, which is – that's nice, I suppose – but it's almost equally disappointing, isn't it, that that's what it takes? Um, it's a difficult one, I think. I think when you're when you write about women's sport, you're almost uh, grateful that there's like a heavy feature at some point. So you take the yes. tokenistic coverage of the Solheim Cup over no coverage at all. Um, but I, I do see I do see your point in the sentiment around. Um, a bit like jumping on the bandwagon almost. Um, So it's a a tough one, really. One of the things, so this particular paper focused explicitly on that notion of like war and battle, Mm -hmm. but it actually was part of a a bigger project that, um, where we just kind of looked at all the strategies that the media had employed during uh, that tournament. And one of the things we noticed was the referring back to the Ryder Cup as like a point of reference, Mm -hmm. which is interesting in itself because on the one hand, lots of people don't know what the Solheim Cup is, especially non-golf fans, but your average non-golf fan knows what the Ryder Cup is. So it gives like a good benchmark for people to be able to make sense of it. But at the same time, and probably similar to the the discussion we had about the Rugby World Cup, Mm. puts the Solheim Cup as almost like, the Ryder Cup's little sister. Little sister, so that's yeah. right. Oh, look at plucky no, little sister go. Nobody at the Ryder yeah. Cup is talking about comparisons with the Solheim Cup. No, absolutely not. But in the Solheim Cup, we had Bronte Law, who was the European Ian Poulter, and mm-hmm. Danielle Kang, you know, was, was Patrick Reed, And we had all these comparisons, which on the one hand, great. It gives the non-women's golf fans a, a benchmark to go, oh, right, okay, so... 
as Europeans, we don't like Patrick Reed, So that makes sense that we now don't like Danielle Kang because of what she said in the press conference. Yeah. Oh, we like Bronte Law because Ian Poulter, he's feisty and he's Mr. Ryder Cup. So that must be what Bronte Law's like. So that's really positive yeah. on the one hand. But on the other hand, probably highlights the bigger problems around yeah. how we cover women's golf that we don't know Bronte Law, who at that point, I think, was top 30 in the world and an LPGA winner. So... I'm conflicted because yeah, I um, like interesting nuances to it. I think it's conflicting because I really enjoy those comparisons. Yeah, <laughs> those, those they are, make they make sense to those me. Those but I I know both sides of that equation, and and I'm thinking, oh yeah, that's that's a fun comparison. Of course, but, the world's not perfect, Doctor Ellie, and you hope that that bring for the thousand people who come along for the week that a hundred will stay and become legitimate uh, fans of the women's game as well as the men's game. It's not an either or. People, you can yeah, be a absolutely. fan of both, which is great. Just a couple of things to pick up. Mel Reed is the Ian Poulter of the Solheim Cup, so not to be picky, but uh, uh, Bronte Law is good, I, and it's a bit unfair. She's not Daniel Reed. Kang, I think, comparing her to Patrick to Patrick Reed. Reed. <laughs> it's a bit. Uh, and by the way, such as Europeans, you don't like Patrick Reed. Uh, he didn't. He didn't prove particularly popular down here in Melbourne at the President's Cup either. I can assure you. Uh, Doctor, a couple of can't have it. Can't have anything without a couple of in golf jokes. So we just had to uh, just had to do that. Overall, what's your sense, Doctor Ali, of golf? Your 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 purview is sport. How does golf compare in this? Because of course, in terms of women in a professional league, golf is generations ahead of most sports. Women have been able to make a living playing golf since. The 50s, 60s, 70s. Now, that's not unproblematic. There's lots of issues with how that works. But far more so, golf and tennis would be the two I think you would look at and say, well, you grow up knowing that there are professional women golfers and professional women tennis players. It's a new idea for many of us in the world to have professional women soccer players, professional women cricketers. So in some ways, golf, for all of its uh, obvious and easily point outable traditionalist nonsense is somewhat ahead of the curve or am I grasping yes, at straws there? <laughs> no, you're spot on. Um, 1950, the LPGA was started. Um, Women's Tennis Association wasn't till 19, 1973, I believe. <laughs> so, Jesus. and we think of tennis as the guiding, the, you know, the guiding light of what gender equality looks like in sport. Um, but go yeah, golf really led the way and continues to do so. Um, and the two sports themselves provide, um, for those that are the best in the world, a really lucrative career, um, much more lucrative than one of an academic, I'll have you know. So, um, yeah. Or being a journo, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Make a lot more playing it than writing about it, trust me. Yeah. Um, loads of positives from for women being professionals in golf. Um that you definitely can't overlook when we think about uh, research that I've done in, in England um, with elite sports people. Many women competing at the top of their their respective sports don't earn a living or maybe are on kind of only getting match fees or, you know, small about a small amount of sort of travel expenses and are working full-time jobs around trying to be, you know, international athletes Um so golfers, on the one hand, do have it very good in, in golf mm -hmm. for as a benchmark for what professional female athletes can achieve. Um, golf really is up there for sure. So, no, really good point. Yeah. What's the role of men in all of this, Dr. Ali? Are we just the demons 
or oh, no. uh, and can we have, we've talked about this a couple of times on the show and it is really interesting, Andy Murray's often held up as um, somewhat different and, be, and, and he's applauded because he talks about women's tennis and the women tennis players. We don't see a lot of it in golf. Would that be helpful if I know Francesco Molinari had some things to say about women's golf after winning the Open a couple of years ago, which was fantastic to see. Jeff Ogilvie was – he became a hero, I think, to most of the fans of the women's game at the Vic Open last year when he spoke about enjoying watching the women play and how men golfers can learn from them and uh, making some comments. What role do we as men have, both in the media and the players, I think, of particularly – the Justin Rose series that we just saw recently. Yeah, I was just going to say. He might have had the best did. PR of anybody out of that whole, <laughs> that whole series. Yeah. That was a fantastic return on investment for him. I'm not suggesting that's why he did it, but uh, in those terms, it was a it was really interesting, wasn't it, what unfolded there? Yes, really interesting. I think um, it's a really interesting point that you make because it's a fine line, really, when when especially for me as an academic, but for, um, for someone like Meg as well, um, when you highlight disparities or whether that's around journalists language and how they talk about female athletes or whether that's the stuff that Megan does in terms of pay disparity, it, it toes the line to people thinking that you're against what men have achieved, if that makes sense. Um, but I think there's a, a real need, especially in a sport like golf where men and women can compete against each other, that men act as, allies really for women and the examples you've given it are exact have done exactly that so Andy Murray has done it in tennis um Justin Rose this summer um transformed the women's game in the UK during the corona lockdown um where there was no tournaments no earning no the golf courses were closed for a good chunk of the year and then the the PGA tour kicks off in June and there's no sign of the start of the women's pro tour. And yeah, I mean, we all know the Justin Rose story in the Rose Ladies series, but that was massive. And it wasn't just because he put money up and changed it from kind of a one one event roll up um, tournament to a series, but he got Sky on board um, at, it was reported, his own cost as well. Um, so I think it's really important that men find a time, like you say, if we're fans of golf, we can be fans of women's golf and men's golf. It doesn't have to be an either or. And I think most of the female players that you speak to and, and you can see it in terms of their, what they tweet about and engage with on social media, they're obviously fans of golf. So they're fans of what happens in the women's game and they're definitely fans of what happens in the men's game. And it would be really cool to see more of that, I think. Um, from the the guys, I do think it's you've started to see more of it. I think mm. Tommy Fleetwood tweeted recently in support of of women's golf, so there is more of it. But I think that helps more so the the people that you were talking about earlier. They're like Twitter keyboard bashers um, who are so quick to jump on anything around gender equality. It gives women's golf a stronger grounding, I guess, within the culture of golf, which has historically just been dominated by men. So I think men have a really important role to play as journalists, as golfers, as golf fans, um, for sure. 
there's something generational about that as well, uh, which is probably maybe a little oversimplistic, but I think it's got real value. And I think of Curtis Luck and Hannah Green, two of our uh, very top players from here in Australia, from Western Australia, grew up playing in elite camps, going to interstate series, knowing each other. And unlike in the past, the last decade or two, the the boys and girls, men's and women's teams at those sorts of things have camped and trained together. Something magical with Western Australia. Oh, as well, they've got something there? in the water there's over there. Yeah. That, Andrew I mean, Marchbank, we're going to talk to you one yeah, day about yeah. what you're doing over there. But that alone, so Curtis and Hannah have been friends mm. for years, and Curtis knows how hard Hannah Green works. Yep. On her game, as she now he hits it further and does all of those things that you know men's golf carries on about why it's so much more commercially appealing, but he has actual legitimate respect for Hannah and her game, mm-hmm. and I think generationally that will be Tommy Fleetwood would probably in the age bracket where he would have been playing for England, he would have been around the England women's team more so than in the past where they were two completely separate entities, and so I think that it, it like, like all a- of these things will have its impact as well. That's right. I mean, and it seems like it takes so little effort to acknowledge that, that, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're peers, you know? Yes, we're, exactly. We kind of do the same job. Yeah. Curtis Luck and Hannah Green do the same job. That's right. They're peers yeah. in, and when, in almost every respect. The, the beauty of golf, isn't it, is that it's actually just really a competition against the golf course. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those sport, like it's such an unusual sport in that regard that men and women, it doesn't, doesn't matter where they tee off from they're still playing onto the same green and, and putting into the same hole and and this that was something that Meg had written about on her blog actually um that really the beauty of the game of golf is the game of golf and not who's hitting the ball so it's yeah it gives um golf a good grounding I think especially when you throw in like mixed gender events on the pro tours as well I think that's really cool for engaging a much broader um, spectrum of fans, but well, if you it, want, it's, it is like uh, you against the course, except when it's war, like at the yeah, that's exactly, Cup. Well, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, except like, the Sohan Cup, it's which not. is why the Ryder Cup is both the best and worst golf event on the calendar every yeah. two years. In fact, it even gets to the crazy point. I think there's, if not fisty cuffs, close to amongst the journo's covering the event from either side of the pond. Yeah. Uh, like they legitimately, uh, it gets quite nasty. There's always tension there, no matter what. But at the Ryder Cup, it's been known to almost boil over. I think they might have separate buses these days for the for the journey. And that's not healthy. I mean, that's kind of lost the, the, yeah. the point of what it's about. Actually, just reflecting on the Solheim Cup, sorry to go back to this, but it just reminded me of that, that great moment where uh, I think the most kick-ass moment of that Solheim Cup was when uh, Suzanne Pedersen's hit her close approach to the 18th and, Mar- and she's waiting for Marina Alex to play and she's walked up to the top of the hill and then she's done the log oh, carry. Oh, the log carry with, with the putter. She, she's got a putter over her shoulder <laughs> and doing the log carry, waiting for Marina Alex to hit. That was just- that Power was, move. That was all out. That was such a power I move. Mean, that was all Suzanne out. that's Pedersen all the way through, oh, isn't absolutely. it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well. that, to me, was the pinnacle moment of that absolutely. Solheim Cup. Not when she held the putt. That was fine. You know, that was just the that was the chef's kiss. Yeah. But the- <laughs> the, uh, that, That's a real power <laughs> move, isn't it? Yeah. I'll just stand here and wait. No, no, no. You get yeah. on with it. I'll wait to win. It's uh, yeah. what I'm over there. And, and wonderful- um, Wonderful for her redemption, I think, is probably the word after the incident yeah, in America yeah. a few years earlier where she was unfairly just reamed by all of the press. Words like bravery, courage, they don't really have a place in sport, do they? But we use them all the time, Dr. Alias Journos. Yes, There's yeah, nothing, definitely. That it- nothing courageous about hitting a golf ball. 
Yeah, no, but like you, you were saying, Adrian, when you stood on the first tee, it becomes a yeah, bit right. of a harder, that's, that's harder right. task, doesn't it? Exactly. It's easy for you to say, Rod. That was oh, that was pretty courageous with thick, <laughs> and, thick and rough left and right. We <laughs> saw how courageous you were <laughs> over your second shot, didn't we? And you folded up exactly. like a cheap deck chair under pressure. Disappointed is, uh, a lot of people <laughs> who've had very high <laughs> expectations on me based on one shot. Dr. Ali, there are a million other things. I think we're going – I say this to a lot of guests, but I definitely think we're going to have you back. I'd like to have yourself and Neve and or Dr. P – uh, without us do a podcast, that would be without me and Adrian. I think that would be some interesting stuff because Dr. P taps into a lot of these things too, um, which is really good stuff. It's been fantastic to chat to you. We've kept you longer than I meant to. I apologise for that, but I found the uh, conversation intriguing and compelling, and we thank you for taking some time. I really appreciate you having me on, so thanks a lot, guys. It's literally the least we could do. <laughs> and we're always up for the least we can do, Dr. Ali Logue. Great to have you back, mate, and I hope that that's your last foray in this serious competition. <laughs> serious. Have you been cured for again. a bit? It was, it was a lot of fun. I'd recommend to to any mid-amateurs to go Good along and, uh, it's actually, and visit one of those. This events. is a separate issue, Dr. Ali, but golf as a vehicle for tourism and industry yep. and yep. business, a place like Foster Tunkari, the small town where they had the mid-amateur that Adrian played in, would have drawn huge financial benefits from that event being in town. How many people in the men's and women's total? 200. 200 people plus no doubt many brought their partners, yep. eating out every night, staying in, you know. Exactly. Golf's an extraordinary business uh, aside from being oh, just yeah, a game. absolutely. I was happy to contribute to the economy of Foster Well, that's Tank really Curry. the purpose of it, wasn't it? That's pretty much all doing. I contributed. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, and a couple of golf balls that the yeah. local kids will find in the next couple I, of weeks. I just thank, Thanks very much for your time today, Ali. I just wanted to mention, because we didn't mention the title of the paper, uh, which yes. is awesome. And where to find it and- Right, people want to read it. the The title is taken from, I think, some correspondence you had with Meg. Um, but it's it's, uh, it's from her blog. Actually, oh, it's from the blog. It's something she wrote in her blog. And it's it right when it hurts, then right till it doesn't. And there's there's more to that sentence in context, but I think it's a fantastic title. Right up there with women, war, and sport. Women, war, and sport. Oh, I'm all in. I want to read that yeah. paper. I'm in fact I'm <laughs> going to do that this weekend when I get a bit of time. That'd be great. Lovely to chat, Dr. Ali. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, guys. That's it for episode, what did I say, 55, 56? Episode 50-something of the Good Good Golf Podcast. We will be back to do it all again next week on episode 50-something else here at Good Good Golf Podcast.